This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the latest cyber exercise at the Pentagon reveals good news and bad news. And inside the DOD bug bounty program, that's the first of its kind. It's Wednesday, July 13th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A, quote, joint organizing body would benefit the JADC2 program at the Defense Department, according to the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. Doug Bush says such an organization would ensure more seamless integration and operability among the services. More on JADC2 later in the program. You can read more about this headline, lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. The Defense Department's reviewing results from the Hack Us program. That program ended Monday, and the department awarded more than $110,000 in bug bounties. Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, U.S. Navy retired, is former Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Navy and former Director of Current Operations at U.S. Cyber Command. She's author of Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. Donnell, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. It's written, Hack U.S., Brandy Vincent writes about this on fedscoop.com and tells me it's, they say it, hack us. It's the most recent bug bounty program in DOD. What did you learn reading about Hack US from a cyber perspective? Welcome to know. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think um, Hack US, I mean, what they're really doing is they're taking their uh, Hack the Pentagon and the efforts they've had with the vulnerability disclosure program in DOD since 2016, actually. And I'll, I'll go over a little bit of that in a minute. Well, the history of this, but um, what they want to do is give financial rewards to ethical hackers and security researchers who can ID critical and high severity vulnerabilities on the DOD networks, the Doden in particular, and they just, they're expanding their vulnerability program. They just expanded it in January to all information systems, not just public facing websites, for example. So they're looking at really going after all the Department of Defense information systems, and that will include eventually operational technology, like you might think of propulsion systems and things like that. Um, And I think it's great because um, uh, the the ability to have confidence in your networks um, and understand what your vulnerabilities are means that you have to have be able to take scrutiny from outside sources and not just be a self with an ice cream cone, because sometimes you're not always uh, completely honest with yourself about what you got that's not right. The quote that jumped out at me in Brandy's story is uh, from the spokesperson for the uh, new Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office at DOD, Kathleen Clark, saying, for the first time, we're paying for submitting vulnerabilities against the entire DOD scope of assets, numbering in the tens or hundreds of thousands. That speaks to that evolution that you just described. When the bug bounty program first started, it was against uh, assets that were, you know, not necessarily real high profile. It was the right thing to do to start someplace uh, small and and not as high profile. And this sounds to me like what Ms. Clark is getting at is this is a, an idea that is progressing. It's evolving. It's growing. It's scaling. Am I reading that right? Do you think, Danelle? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the original hack the Pentagon started under, gosh, under Secretary of Defense Ash Carter back in uh, April 2016 to May uh, 2016, they ran that first bug bounty. Um, And what they did, that was actually the first bug bounty in the federal government, period, and not just DOD, but period. And they they had, you know, about 1,400 people get registered, 2,500 or 250 actually reported, and they actually came up with 138 critical vulnerabilities. 
And after that, they had a couple other bug bounties. I was over at Cybercom at the time, and I remember some of them were really contentious because uh, they were people were very nervous about people bug bounting some of the systems that we were doing. But it, it's so important to be, like I said, be confident enough that you are willing to accept negative results that you will then have to fix and take responsibility for by having somebody outside look at it. And when you look at bug bounties in general, I mean, the, the commercial market for bug bounties has grown from 223 million in 2020 to an estimated 5 billion in 2027. That's how important this is. So you've got companies like Apple has their commercial, their unauthorized, uh, their bug bounty program that has gives $100,000 for a text that gain access to unauthorized sensitive data, pictures, context, that kind of thing. You got Microsoft got a bug bounty and researcher recognition program. And, and they, and you, if you see where they're focusing, it's areas where DOD is also interested. So bug bounties for Microsoft, the biggest ones are Microsoft Identity, which will give you 100K, up to 100K for vulnerabilities you find, and Azure, the cloud service, for 60K. And again, those are areas where the, U the DOD and the U.S. government heavily rely on. So we're, we're glad that companies like that are doing that. And Google has a bug bounty program. They paid out $8.7 million in 2021. Um, you know, and so even Walmart, I mean, you know, companies you wouldn't think of. So my point is that whole market's growing. And the reason is that the average organization, when they do a scan of their networks, like through a program like this, there's 31,000 security vulnerabilities on an average company's network, right? You know, average big size company. And of those 800 are critical and dangerous vulnerabilities. So to have bug bounty people go after those and help people find them is only a good news story. In Take me back to that conversation you mentioned a few minutes ago at Cybercom. What were the more detailed arguments in the SCIF for and against the original bug bounty program? Because I imagine that's the same kind of conversation that's going on in civilian agencies where I don't see as much demand, at least, um, for the bug bounty concept more broadly. Yeah, so when you think about it, we originally started with things like public safe facing websites, you know, people would face websites or, but the problem is, you know, through website scripting and things, you can get into other systems that are connected to those websites. So there's always a concern that there would be a spillover or maybe, um, you know, you might find something that's, you don't want, honestly, you know, people had the conversation and maybe we don't want people to know how vulnerable we are, you know, and that's just human nature, right? Um, and again, I think that that protectionist kind of, attitude from um, cybersecurity professionals is kind of waning, waning now because people are realizing, hey, we have to crowdsource this. We have to get help. We have to get the best and the brightest. I mean, when you look at what hackers are doing, I mean, my God, Lockbit 3.0 just came out. That's ransomware as a service. We got criminal gangs providing ransomware as a service and bug their own bug bounty programs. I mean, there's one that's paying ethical and unethical, as they say, hackers to provide PII and high profile individuals and they're paying between $1,000 and $1 million for those things. So when you've got an adversary doing that, you know, even realizing the value of a bug bounty or a vulnerability program, my gosh, federal government needs to make sure everybody's on board. And I think DOD is, they're doing a great job and they're doing it in a very coordinated way. You mentioned the Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office, the CDAO, which is kind of a new uh, construct, but they've also, uh, they're doing it in conjunction with the Directorate for Digital Services and the DOD Cyber Crime Center. So you've got all three working together. And I think that's a, the best way to do a really good approach. What is the concern, if any, in the cyber community, especially in the government, Danelle, given the stakes evolving as quickly as you just described them with the kinds of companies that you talked about? Obviously, they'll spend a lot of money on their systems. And 
I wonder how much worry or concern there is that it gets harder and harder over time to tell who the ethical hackers are and who the unethical hackers are, because you don't know till it's too late. Right. And unethical hackers are very good at portraying themselves as ethical. So with all these programs, the bug grounding programs, normally what part of the process is, is you vet the people who are doing it. It's not like you just take Joe bag of donuts and let them hit your network, right? There's an application process. They kind of vet you. They may determine, hey, are you even a U.S. citizen? And maybe that's an important criteria. There's certain criteria you may want, right? Um, but I think that the way that they, they uh, enable a broad group to participate is important. You know, so like when you look at some of the bug bounty programs, for example, that Google did, they had almost 700 researchers from 62 different countries. Okay, and now we can kind of compare ourselves to them in scope, maybe not the, the, the type of people who are on the networks. Obviously, that's an international community. But you can look at the, the point that that you have to have that diversity of the group because you're going to get different kinds of hackers with different propensities and different attempts and approaches and TTPs. So it's it's really valuable to have those ethical hackers from very broad, as broad a background as you can legally and uh, uh, security-wise support, you know, from a national security perspective. But one of the pilots they just finished up was the, that one you mentioned, it was actually for the Defense Industrial Base VDP, um, which was a collaboration between the uh, DOD Div Collaborative Information Sharing Environment and the um, DOD VDP program that existed and the Defense Counter Intel Security Agency. And that was an important one too, because a lot of our partners, as you know, um, have our data on their networks. And so our Doden is exactly in Lockheed Martin or in Boeing or in these companies who, who connect with us and do our work. A lot of our data is there. So having these programs extend to them is equally important. Are there networks that the department shouldn't bug bounty or shouldn't in certain ways, if that's even a thing to know? I think given if you can get the people with the proper security clearances, everything should be bug bounty. I think the issue becomes, you know, there's some things that you may need a security clearance for, but you can still get people and companies who work with us, you know, who uh, could help us out with that. That may not be a government employee, maybe a contractor with a security clearance. Danelle Barrett, it's great to talk to you as always. Thank you very much. Thank you, Francis. It's been a pleasure. Take care. You can read more in today's show notes at defensescoop.com and more about Hack US in just a moment. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Defense Scoop podcast. The lineup for Defense Talks is filling in. The director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, is one of the headliners just added. You can see the rest of the lineup and register for Defense Talks September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City through the link in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. That bug bounty program Admiral Barrett described is a first of its kind. Melissa Weiss is Chief Operations Officer in the Vulnerability Disclosure Program at the DOD Cyber Crimes Center. She tells Billy Mitchell of Defense Scoop why it's unique for the department so far. We are the first federal VDP, Vulnerability Disclosure Program, to actually launch a bug bounty. And why we're doing this is basically to go after the signal to noise ratio over the past six years that we've been running a VDP, um, we've certainly taken care of over 47,000 uh, vulnerability reports. However, we really wanted to go after the critical and highs for this particular first out of the gate, very short duration. And we wanna see what type of reports we get and how different they are from the standard vulnerability disclosure reports that we get every other day. 
And I think, you know, something that stood out to me is this is, seems to be the first one where the DOD is paying money uh, to people who are returning these vulnerabilities. And I'm curious, you know, how does paying money for these vulnerability reports increase engagement with the white hat community uh, and perhaps engage people who are higher level uh, users who are now searching for vulnerabilities across DOD's platforms and uh, public presence? Yes, Billy, that's exactly it. Um, certainly we have great crowdsource ethical hackers that work with us. We've had over 3,200 in our six years that have submitted reports to us and we really value them. But we wanted to see, would there be different researchers that came on board if we offered some money? And this is not big money, mind you, $110,000 goes really quickly, um, but we do have some best of categories that are paying 3,000 each, um, and then an overall price that'll pay 5,000. So it's not big money that's gonna really attract the high rollers, um, but we did wanna see apples to apples, not changing the scope of what's in the our uh, VDP already, because we covered the entire Doden. Uh, we wanted to keep that the same. And the only thing that we're changing is we're tossing out some coin instead of reputation points. It's not something that we'll do forever, but we do want to see how does that change the dynamics. And you mentioned the high and critical level vulnerabilities that you're accepting through the program. What are we talking about with that? And, and sort of uh, what's the scope of this, uh, the entirety of the Doden that you just mentioned that, that people are sort of looking at and reporting vulnerabilities on? Well, we, we received a scope expansion last year from the Deputy SecDef uh, in January of 2021. And prior to that, uh, the five years prior, we were basically in charge of all of the websites uh, for the DOD. Now we have all publicly accessible information systems and networks. So that includes IoT devices, um, internet of things, or we would have uh, uh, ICS, uh, industrial control systems, SCADA, if they happen to be hitting the internet, mobile phones. Um, it, it's a broad gamut. Uh, so we ostensibly went from 2,400 units to about 24 million units overnight in January. Uh, so it's a really broad scope. It's a great area for researchers to get out there and um, see what they can see. It's all publicly accessible, so we're not giving them any special accesses. Um, it's going to be exactly the same TTPs that our adversaries would have. And so we want to see what type of critical and highs these researchers can come back with. And so on, on the DC3 side or the Department of Defense side, partnering with HackerOne, when uh, an ethical white hat hacker submits one of these vulnerability reports, what happens from there? What actions do you take to remediate those um, you know, amid this seven-day challenge? So what, what has been happening is when we opened the, the, the gates on the 4th of July on Monday, uh, you know, they were waiting. We had publicized it a little bit ahead of time uh, on the 1st. So the moment we opened up the gates, we had 56 reports instantly within five minutes. Uh, so uh, as you can imagine, that means we have to triage all of those. And, and by we, I mean HackerOne. So HackerOne being the front end had to triage those. So we were open for about one hour 
and we had to shut down. We had had well over a hundred reports and everybody needed to catch up. So we paused until the next day, 10 a.m. We opened up again, same thing happened. We were down within about an hour. Uh, we were really happy uh, as of uh, yesterday that we were able to stay open for five and a half hours. Uh, so the flow slowed a little bit, but it requires the triaging of those reports. And again, we're triaging them to make sure that they are the highs and criticals that they can pay out. But they then follow the same process that we do in VDP. So those will immediately be um, sent over to DC3's uh, DOD VDP program. We'll ingest those into the Vulnerability Report Management Network, we call Furman, and um, get about going after those uh, to be remediated. So those will be sent over to Doden uh, via the Vermin system and uh, off to the system owners to be remediated immediately. Melissa, I'd love to hear what the push has been like from the cultural side. There's obviously been a, a number of different hack the Pentagon or hack the different services type engagements uh, across the military that have gone on over the past several years. But I'd be curious to hear from your perspective what it's been like to move the DOD in this direction where it accepts submissions of vulnerability disclosures and now it's paying money to do so. Yeah, uh, you, you bring up a great point because I can tell you, you know, we launched in 2016 and at that time it was really unheard of uh, to bring in crowdsourced ethical hackers, to work for the federal government, to, to contribute in this way. Um, and over these years, we often get asked, like uh, only, only the Pentagon would ask people to actually come out and, uh, and hack them. Um, but over that time, we've seen VDPs become accepted within federal government. Um, you know, things like, uh, you know, the uh, OMB's 20-32, where it says, you know, VDPs are a good way to go after um, these types of vulnerabilities. It's a low-cost methodology to be able to get uh, reports submitted in, um, even to CISA's BOD, um, the BOD 2001, in which we're looking at a lot of other organizations over the, the past two years standing up VDPs. So it's become way more accepted that a vulnerability disclosure program is a good way for uh, researchers to turn in these results. The part that's changing is can we continue to do this without paying for those results? Um, they've been voluntary programs and they've been very, very successful, but everything needs to evolve. And I think we're going towards more of a CVD or a coordinated vulnerability disclosure, where we have a combination of true VDPs, but maybe with some bug bounty events or maybe with some bonuses. Um, so this is not really a true bug bounty, it's more of a challenge event. And we're using this as, uh, as you said, as a bellwether um, to find out how well this will work in the future. But, uh, you know, we, we just have to keep evolving the programs and, and keep it working. That's, that's really exciting. Melissa, as we close out, you know, uh, by the time this interview between the two of us airs, Hack the Hack US, Hack Us, the program will be over or wrapping up. But I'd be curious, how do you or what do you hope the end result will be? 
Well, one of the things that uh, we're hoping to, to look at, we'll, we'll be doing an after action report. Certainly HackerOne always does that for these types of events. Um, it does take several weeks um, to a month to get all of that criteria together. However, one of the areas that we wanna look at, A, really is the type of reports that we've received. Um, since they are only criticals and highs, were they something that we could have maybe received otherwise and why did we only receive them once we started paying some some money to it uh the other thing is did we get new researchers we opened this up completely wide open this was not a bug bounty uh invitation only event this was wide open so how many new researchers uh did we get contributing and i can tell you already we have seen lots of new researchers and we've seen a lot of new researchers giving us lows and mediums along with these criticals and highs and that's really what we hope to see um, just a renewed interest in a see something say something program that we've had going for six years now melissa vice of the dod cyber crime center you can read more about hack us hack us in today's show notes at defense scoop podcast.com The department has a shortage of power that it says it needs for 21st century warfighting, but the department's making progress on one of the core components of that warfighting technique. John Harper's managing editor of Defense Scoop, Brandy Vincent, a reporter for Defense Scoop. Welcome to both of you. Brandy, I start with you. The Defense Department asking for uh, a JADC2 concept of operations and in the process of developing it. Here's what jumped out at me in this story of yours. Just two weeks ago, we had all five service chiefs talking JADC2 for two hours. That's from Brigadier General John Olson, the Chief Data and AI Officer at the Space Force. What's the significance of that as the department tries to put together its JADC to really combine everything together into a joint operation? Thanks, Francis, for having us. In the past, each of the U.S. military services produced and relied on its own tactical network um, that wasn't compatible with the other services. JADC2 is how the Pentagon wants to fix that. Um, they aim to connect sensors and shooters and other technologies all across the military services to allow for quicker data sharing um, and just really better decision making as the conflict landscape evolves to be more digital. Um, and so businesses for a while now have been being added to the Air Force's Advanced Battle Management or ABMS vehicle, which is for the network that's really gonna underpin JADC2. Um, now I'm sort of really interested in seeing um, task orders being awarded as opposed to just new companies added. Um, I think we're gonna be wanting to take a big look uh, at sort of the different um, capabilities that are being experimented and demonstrated. And that sort of goes back to what you asked about, Francis, at um, a big symposium this week. That was a narrative that I really heard um, from a variety of the different former and current high up defense leaders who were speaking. Um, they said that a con ops, a concept of operations, which is something that really lays out the features and expectations of how proposed capabilities will be used by the users is something that we must see um, come soon from the Pentagon to help all the different components across all the different domains uh, really be on one page, which is ultimately what JADC2 um, aims to help to do. And uh, 
Mr. Olson, who you mentioned, um, the Space Force's chief data and AI officer, he said beyond that CONOPS, um, another thing that the different service chiefs discussed as a high priority in that meeting um, that actually didn't make it into my story was the criticality of data and stitching all their data together. So I think that's another level of commonality that we're going to see them really tackle uh, to support JADC2 um, and sort of keep that narrative going. Well, the idea of stitching everything together has been the challenge or, or at least the, the, the missing link, I guess, of uh, JADC2 from the very beginning. I mean, we've had the Army's been working on convergence for a number of years, the Navy on overmatch and the Air Force on ABMS. And, uh, and how do all of those intersect has been the issue. So th this piece toward the end of your story is full of stuff. And toward the end of it, I think, is an important piece here. The assault in the Army, Doug Bush, calling for a, a, a joint organizing body. Like, that sounds like a joint program office for JADC2. What do we know, if anything, about the possibility of, of that happening at some point? Um, it was a proposal that uh, he really advocated for. And he said that there was a similar office um, in his sort of purview with the army uh, that sort of does that for UAS and drones um, and has been really helpful. And he would sort of like to see that uh, be applied there. I haven't heard um, any hard stop from the Pentagon that it's coming, but uh, someone else on that panel who worked very closely with Mr. Bush, um, former acting Navy secretary, Sean Stackley, he had said, uh, today the rhetoric is really hot and the rhetoric is outpacing the actual progress or activity as it relates to JADC2, though there is movement. And so I think sort of seeing that um, organization or structure around more uh, collaboration or engagement between all those um, different many, many components is something that we're going to certainly be keeping an eye on um, for how it'll evolve in the near term. One of the other models that's been talked about for potentially a JADC2 office is the Jake, which doesn't exist anymore, but um, occupied that same space in the broader artificial intelligence discussion in the building for a number of years. John, thanks for joining me. One of the elements of JADC2 that's tremendously important, every service has talked about it, whether it's technology or strategy or, or implementation, um, every service will need edge computing power to maximize the potential of JADC2. You have a story up uh, about the shortage of edge computing power. What does that look like and why is that important? Well, that's uh, particularly true for uh, space systems. Uh, you know, many of these systems were designed decades ago, you know, not intended to have AI and machine learning and other, uh, you know, high powered uh, edge computing capabilities on them. But now that JADC2 uh, you know, is this new vision uh, the military is trying to implement, um, you know, that could be uh, a really uh, critical shortage um, if, uh, if DOD can't ramp that up. Um, you know, the idea is, uh, you know, they want these systems, uh, satellites in particular, you know, it would be optimal if they could process and crunch all this data and just get it directly to the warfighters without having to transfer it to other ground stations and uh, do more, you know, back office uh, processing. Um, so the Space Force and Air Force, you know, are, are trying to kind of figure out how to strike the right balance there and what 
uh, you know, new uh, capabilities, uh, you know, algorithms uh, could be put on these systems to try to make them uh, more effective. This, the potential for acceleration here that you're writing about is fascinating. Lisa Costa, Chief Technology and Innovation Officer for the Space Force. Fundamentally, I'd like to use edge-based devices to do most of our AI compute. Um, most assets we put up in space don't have the storage or compute power to do that, but I would like to not have to do it on the ground and then move everything up into space. If that's happening and that edge computing and, and the edge computing devices are talking to each other, negating what you just referred to a moment ago about the information having to go edge to ground, ground to edge and so forth. If we're talking edge to edge, that accelerates the pace of the data exchange exponentially, doesn't it, John? Absolutely, and space systems are, are a really critical component of uh, JADC2. You know, the uh, uh, DoD uh, Space Development Agency in particular wants to put up new satellite constellations in low Earth orbit. Uh, and the idea is, you know, that they could uh, serve as kind of a, a new data transport layer uh, for US military forces. And there are also legacy satellite systems that DOD wants to integrate into this whole JADC2 picture. So, you know, the more uh, edge computing capability that these systems have, the easier it's going to be to process and, and move that data around quickly uh, to the people who need it. So this is a really big deal. Um, and, uh, you know, the Pentagon's going to have to figure out, you know, okay, how much edge computing power can they get up there? How quickly can they do it? To what extent do they still need to rely on ground stations or other systems uh, for this data processing and, and transport? So it's definitely something to keep an eye on in the years ahead as these new systems are put up there. Obviously, an advantage with newer systems is maybe you can kind of, you know, already install these uh, capabilities when you put them up. So that could be a, a you know, particular advantage of these new constellations. Uh, that might be going up. But, uh, you know, it's a it's a complicated picture and something that, uh, you know, DOD is still trying to wrap its arms around just in terms of how they want to uh, address this and have these, you know, mix of uh, of capabilities there. John, what do you uh, have in your notebook to follow this uh, week ahead? You know, DOD, uh, even though they haven't even fielded their first kind of generation of uh, hypersonic uh, missiles, uh, they're already looking ahead about how they want to pursue future systems and more advanced uh, capabilities. You know, and while these this sort of first set of systems will have uh, the ability to be upgraded, you know, DoD is looking at even more advanced concepts and how to kind of replenish that early pipeline of prototypes and other R&D efforts for the next generation of systems. And I thought that was really interesting. The uh, research and engineering director, their kind of point person. Uh, for that uh, spoke today and, and kind of laid out the vision and the various pillars of their strategy that they're developing uh, for those. And obviously, you know, hypersonics uh, are a top modernization priority for the Pentagon. They're trying to keep pace with Russia and China, which have already fielded their own systems. Uh, so, you know, the U.S. is rushing to get those systems fielded in the next few years, but at the same time thinking about, okay, what comes after that? How can they leap ahead in hypersonics and not just play catch up? Uh, with Russia and China. And uh, later this week, uh, CSIS is hosting a Homeland uh, Cruise Missile Defense Conference, which I'm uh, certainly interested in, uh, in attending. Uh, they're going to have a number of uh, combatant commanders attending that. 
uh, Missile Defense Agency officials, other DOD folks, um, to talk about a challenge that hasn't really been a big focus, um, you know, in recent uh, decades, uh, nearly as much as, for example, ballistic missile defense. Um, but uh, cruise missile defense getting is getting a lot more attention, especially now that you, you know countries are developing hypersonic cruise missile capabilities. Uh, you know, it makes it more challenging uh, potentially to defend targets, uh, you know, on the homeland. So uh, that's certainly something I'm going to be tracking. Brandy, what's ahead for you? Well, there is an ongoing um, virtual global space symposium that has a bunch of um, really interesting speakers from the Space Force and the broader Defense Department. I'm particularly looking forward to a panel on Bitcoin and the Space Force and the future of national security and soft power. Um, something else that I'm really excited about uh, is I um, I'm speaking with the uh, director of the Defense um, Innovation Unit, Mr. Mike Brown. He will be leaving that post uh, fairly soon and um, looking forward to sharing some sort of updates around uh, sort of what he's done, where he's going, and what we can expect from sort of that innovation office. All right. You very graciously agreed to record that and share that with us on the next episode of the Defense Scoop podcast. Looking forward to that. Brandy Vincent, John Harper, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about all these stories and see the coverage throughout the coming week with the links in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop podcast returns next Wednesday with Brandy Vincent's conversation with Mike Brown at the Defense Innovation Unit. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.